This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to react to Conor McGregor saying he's tied for all-time MMA greatest of all time. We're going to get to Daniel Cormier commenting on fighter pay. We'll speak to UFC bantamweight Sugar Sean O'Malley, and I'll explain how a smaller cage size for the UFC's Apex shows could make a big difference. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Happy Tuesday to everyone. Hope you had a restful weekend. I, I know I did. I was able to get a little bit of extra sleep, catch up on a little bit of uh, work that I missed yesterday. Didn't work too much. You know, just some things that I was missing. Did some reading, did some studying, that sort of a thing, and kind of kept it real low key. So um, whatever you did, I hope it was safe. I hope it was fun. And I hope you're ready for uh, a week of fights this week. And then I think the one after that as well. Like everything's going to kick right back into high gear. So um, here we go. All right, so let's start here. Before we can really truly look ahead, we have to revisit something that that happened. I think this was on Saturday, sometime in the morning or something like that. Uh, Former UFC featherweight and lightweight champion Conor McGregor took to Twitter to lay out a thread about who is the greatest of all time in MMA. Now, I cannot read every tweet because there's many of them. But I'll read the first one and maybe a couple of other ones through the course of this discussion. Here's what the first one says. The array of finishes across two divisions with champion status in one, Anderson Silva is the number one MMA greatest of all time. My array of finishes across three divisions, so feather, light, welter, with champion status in two, I'm number two, if not tied for one, However, still active, number one is fully secured by career end and easily. Now, in his mind, he's got Silva at one and him at two, or Silva 1A, him 1B. He's got GSP at three. He he notes in his argument, GSP has less of an array of finishes, but has champion status in two. He is far behind, though, and the reasons why, according to Conor McGregor, is that he left 170 after much damage taken plus questionable decision, never re-engaged 170's successors, and then bottled the Anderson fight, only moved when one-eyed fighter presented. That is obviously a reference to Michael Bisping, played safe. He has John at four, John Jones. You could make a case for three. He says more array of finishes than three, talking about St. Pierre, and still active, but champion status in just one. Reasons equal multiple lackluster decision performances plus questionable decision win. I guess he's referring to the last fight or potentially the Tiago Santos fight. Attempting to play safe at heavyweight entry, avoiding its champion. And he gave a little bit of a nod to Demetrius Johnson, but didn't really include him in there. And then he says, I didn't mention PED results on multiple entrants. The only two that have had any issues would be Jones and Silva even though that makes me the clear number one MMA GOAT, along with still being active. Although it shames, as well as puts all runs and finishes in complete doubt, I've snored multiple juice heads. A true GOAT must do it all. And then he goes on to say a few more things. Okay. So let's open up the phone lines here. What do you make of Conor McGregor saying he's either number one or number two 
greatest MMA fighter of all time. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. I immediately draw two conclusions, and of course I want to hear yours, 877-FIGHT-93. Phone lines are open here to start the show. Uh, I immediately draw two conclusions. One, I'll be honest, I like where his head's at. I'll, I'll get to this in a minute. I don't really agree that he's number one or number two. Frankly, I wouldn't put him top ten. But... I like that he's got this competitive edge where he wants to reach new heights, conquer new goals, find the summit of the next mountain and do something spectacular. Because I don't know if he will, but I know that that attempt is good for the sport. It's interesting to cover. And I prefer Connor when he's occupied and goal driven versus idle and then getting into trouble. Right? I much prefer this version of Connor. To the other one. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that he says, but given the choice between the guy who just took time off and was jumping in the Bellator cage and shoving Mark Goddard versus the guy that really wants to, in his mind anyway, cement his place in the history of the sport, I'll take the second one 10 times out of 10. So, first of all, love that. Second of all, he doesn't really kind of, he doesn't really explicitly state it, which makes this debate kind of difficult to have. But in order to have a discussion about who the greatest of all time is, you have to define greatness, right? What is it? And in combat sports, the, the answer is we don't really have a clear, at least mutually agreed upon definition. Most definitions include things like uh, number of wins, number of wins against quality opposition, world titles, win streaks. Um, competing across multiple weight classes, finishes, finishes against quality opposition, you know, that sort of a thing. Those are the things that we tend to look at, but people will rank those considerations a little bit differently. What is noteworthy about McGregor's definition, which I have to make an attempt at reading because he does not state it explicitly. What's so interesting about it is his definition appears to be what is the upper bound limit of what you achieved? Not any emphasis on a level of um, consistency throughout. Now, you do have to have a relative consistency of achievement, right? There has to be enough of it there to count. But consider the case of St. Pierre or Silva or even Demetrius Johnson or Jones, really any, any of the other ones. What unifies all of them in opposition to McGregor in one level or another, is consistent win streaks, right? Connor is not really counting moments where he dared to be great and failed. He's only counting how many times did I dare to be great and succeeded. And let's put all of the weight of that together. Whereas a case for St. Pierre will have some of those things too, but you'll note St. Pierre only has the two losses. St. Pierre also has defeated every man he's ever faced. Right, John Jones, for all intents and purposes, essentially has no losses. He has, while not rematched Matt Hamill, more or less dominated every man he's ever faced. Right? I think you could say something like that. Not the case for Silva because he has a lengthier resume, switched organizations, that kind of a thing. But the point about, about Connor is Connor doesn't care that you have a perfect resume. Connor just cares about what it looked like at the top. 
That's it. That is not the way typically most people assess greatness in mixed martial arts or combat sports more generally. They count that. They count that in addition to the level of consistency of winning over time. He also puts a heavy emphasis on winning titles across multiple weight classes. I think someone should. Nevertheless, it, get, it gets back to a fairly central debate about what constitutes greatness. I would submit to you that the hardest thing to do in MMA, and the number I don't have specific, but the hardest thing to do is become a weight class champion and then defend it year over year without losing. Because every time you will have to face a number one contender, every time there's going to be more and more tape on you, and there's probably a lot of tape on you by the time you get to the top anyway, um, a lot of these guys like a St. Pierre, and now you're seeing it with the Jones, they're turning in multiple five-round performances over time, which means there's very little they can do to trick anybody or switch things up. They just have to rely on whatever natural ability or skill differential already exists. They can't really change the formula. And then when you've got the next number one contender and the next number one contender, that is very, very difficult to do to win. Super difficult. Okay. So to me, those win streaks matter, not merely because there were no losses in them, but because there were no losses in this incredibly difficult process where if you're Demetrius Johnson, all of a sudden you're fighting Tim Elliott. Tim Elliott's a beast. If you're Anderson Silva, all of a sudden you're fighting Chael Sonnen out of nowhere. He's a beast. All of a sudden you're John Jones and you're fighting Dominic Reyes. He's a beast. All of a sudden you're St. Pierre and you're fighting Hendricks. I frankly thought Hendricks won that fight, but um, you know, pick another one. Dan Hardy went the distance with him. Any number of other ones, right? Carlos Condit, Nick Diaz, blah, blah, blah. It's just incredibly difficult to do. And so if you're St. Pierre, the argument's going to be, a number of things, not limited to, but including that same for Silva, same for the other ones. So Conor McGregor has these incredibly, you have to give him credit, punctuated moments of grand success, jumping up at 205 and demolishing Eddie Alvarez. Wow, that's a big deal, right? You got to count that feather in the cap, no doubt about it. But he never defended the title. Right, beating Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. I mean, no one has done that, right? Quite literally, no one has done that except for him. But he never defended it. And those two titles he took in Cage Warriors before he came over here, he didn't defend those either. And he's got losses, submission losses, across all three of those weight classes. Right? Um, he submitted to Khabib. He submitted to Diaz. And he submitted to uh, Joe Duffy at 145. So to him, those submissions don't exactly, it's not that they don't count exactly, but um, when he is evaluating what someone has done, he doesn't look at so much the other ledger. He just looks at the winning ledger and then assesses what that means. But he's able to do and sort of pick the criteria in the way that he does by virtue of ignoring why you get to a position where some of the best fighters ever have some duds. Now, there's one note, if I may, make about McGregor here that I think deserves some reconsideration. I will allow for him to enter this conversation if he does essentially the impossible. See, as I've mentioned, the hardest thing to do 
is to stand a post and then wave on the next very toughest guy you can over time. Right. It just it, it, it not only is it stay consistently difficult in terms of having to face the number one contender, but each number one contender gets to build off of what the last one did. And so it just gets harder and harder and harder with each subsequent attempt. Right. But there's something interesting about what McGregor is trying here. Remember, I mentioned consistency was the thing you could point to in everyone else's resume that you could not necessarily identify in his. That will change under one condition. If he is able to go up to 170 and win a title there, I think at that point, all bets are off. Because that would be the proof of what he's trying. If the argument is, on a good night, I can win in my weight class, okay, fine. On a really great night, one time, I can win a favorable matchup up a weight class, okay. Can you go up two? In the UFC, that's not... What it would be in boxing, which is, you know, 11 or 12 pounds. We're talking 30 pounds at that point, right? Basically, if not more, depending on who's natural to that weight class versus who's coming up. We're talking a huge jump in size from featherweight to welterweight. Massive. If he becomes the first fighter to win, he's already won the first to hold two at the same time. If he becomes the first fighter to win a weight class title in three divisions, Right, if your power can really translate that far, I will say I'm not going to say it doesn't matter at that point that he didn't defend the titles, but almost, because at that point you'd be doing something that literally no other fighter could do. Now I don't know who the next welterweight is that's going to have as many title defenses in as dominating of a way as Saint Pierre did. That will be very difficult to see. I don't know when the next John Jones is going to come around at light heavyweight. Maybe never. Same for Silva. Same for Demetrius Johnson down to flyweight. Here's what I can say. All of them had lengthy win streaks. It is provable that it's possible to fi- you can find a fighter in a weight class who can jump up and defend it over time. Right? Different weight classes, different challenges, but it can be done. How many can jump across three weight classes and claim a title? When you do that... Not only is that a series of just escalating, punctuated moments, that then becomes the thing that he has lacked to this point, namely consistency over time. It's its own form of consistency. It doesn't mean he never lost or lost rarely and avenged it. What it means is on the right night, he can beat virtually anyone within a spitting distance of his weight. That is hard to do. That is hard to do. We've seen that people can jump up a weight class and have a great night. DC against Stipe. Connor against Eddie. Hard to see him jump two and claim a title. Never been done before. You do that and you're on the list. This week on World of Basketball, the head coach of the Spanish national team and Toronto Raptors assistant Sergio Scariolo joined the show and he spoke about the Raps signing of Marc Gasol midway through last season. I really felt that it could be a great addition to our team. But at the same time, I had to try to be objective because my bosses were, were asking me, you know, Masai and Nick, hey, what's your opinion? What do you think? What do you, what do you think is the pros, the cons? And that's my conclusion was always, this guy is going to help. 
world because it's going to bring more of a winning culture, more of an unselfish attitude, more playmaking. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora. Yesterday, I believe, on a show he does on Mondays now with ESPN's Ariel Hawani. This airs on ESPN, I think, digital. It might air on television as well. I'm not sure. In any event, they do a show. And on this show, they were talking about John Jones wanting more money to go up to heavyweight, right? You'll recall he said he was willing to fight Francis Ngannou, and then he sort of live tweeted this failed negotiation that he had with the UFC where uh, he said to go up there, I'm assuming more risk, I should be paid more, and they essentially told him to pound sand. You know, they said, you might get more if you sell more, but we're not actually going to change the amount that it's already you're contracted to get. And he spoke to MMA junkies, John Morgan and explaining the situation. We talked about it again last week, sort of ad infinitum. I generally am very sympathetic to John Jones's case here. I think his case is quite right. I mean, it's not necessarily that going up in weight by definition should be met with more money, uh, although you can make that argument, right? You can say, if I'm going up in weight, we're assuming this is a more difficult task, right? Getting back to the conversation about Conor McGregor and what defines greatness. One thing is winning titles across multiple weight classes, winning fights generally across multiple weight classes is a key consideration in that. Assuming you're going up in weight, you're taking on more difficult challenges, at least in theory, not every time per se, but in general, that's the idea. If I'm going to be fighting larger men with in this fight that's been suggested with Francis Ngannou, significant punching power. You know, I'm not going to do it for what I'm doing at light heavyweight. I would like to be compensated for the additional risk and the additional challenge. And the reason why I say you can go two ways with that is, one, you can say that by definition, because it is more risky, should be rewarded. Or two, you can say in and of itself, intrinsically, it may not deserve more money. But if you want to negotiate for more money because you believe that it does and you can effectively do it, then you should, by all means, um, That'd be a thing you would want to secure. Either way, I take his side. Um, I tend to think that whatever your sense of Nganu as an overall opponent early on, his ability to switch the lights off is significant. I still favor Jones to win, but you know, saying if you would like me to go do something else, and I would like to go do something else that is up a weight class that is ostensibly carrying more significant challenges, I would like my compensation to reflect that seems to me totally reasonable. We also go back to, again, this is not up for debate. This is not something that's not known. We go back to the class action lawsuit that has been launched by people like Nate Corey Kung Lee and many others, Kyle Kingsbury, and what you what was delivered by UFC, the full totality of the information that they have about fighter compensation. Fighter compensation sits at 20% every year if and only if you count uh, USADA as fighter compensation. If you don't, it's somewhere between 16 and 18% annually. Okay. So we know for a fact that the fighters are underpaid relative to their peers who have trade associations or unions to negotiate on their behalf and secure their interests and uh, raise their pay. And then on top of that, you have this particular case where Jones is asking for, for more money by virtue of the difficulty of the challenge, the unusualness relative to what he's accustomed. Again, seems more than reasonable to me, and he was able to make zero headway. We saw this with Demetrius Johnson. UFC doesn't like to be leveraged. They're not going to pay probably any extra money. Uh, again, circumstances here or there notwithstanding. Okay, so 
Cormier says two different things on this. And one, I find, in general, I find what he says incredibly surprising. And one I find much more surprising than the other, but both I take significant disagreement with. So here's what we're going to do. Let's play each one one at a time, and then I'm going to, just two clips, and then I'm going to, after each clip, tell you what I think the problem is. So we've got two of these cuts. The first one is where he talks about the particulars of Jones wanting more money by virtue of going up a weight class. And he says... Basically, that's just not realistic for a number of different reasons. Let me hear cut one, please. What's a realistic number for John Jones to fight Francis Ngannou, in your opinion? Can I ask that? Yeah. Uh, There's a risk involved, right? He's moving up the heavyweight. Yeah, but, you know, honestly, I can't imagine. I mean, you know, I remember a time when John Jones and I were going to fight, and he was like, I got $10 million, right? Like, total. He's like, I got $10 million. That's what he kept saying. Right. And, um, if you have $10 million, you get half of that in one fight. I think that's good. You'd five, if you made $5 million plus people. So you don't think he should get more for going up to heavyweight? No, man. I didn't. I mean, people don't get more to go up to heavyweight. Like, I didn't get more to go up to heavyweight. I, got, I mean, you know, well, I did get heavyweight. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was lying. I was just lying. I was just lying. I caught myself lying. I'm sorry. I did. I, I did. You did get more. I did get more, but yeah. <laughs> let's say John Jones. But let's say John Jones's base pay is three million dollars. Five. Uh-huh. See, his base pay is five million dollars. Then give him seven million dollars. That's two million dollars. But like, what was the number? You know, like it, that would be when you're talking transparency. Tell the number. If you're being transparent, tell the number That's, that you threw out there. I would love that. Listen, you know, I, right? I'm if a big fan. The number, if you thought the number, what do you think is legitimate for him to go up? Twelve million dollars? Twenty million dollars? Like, what's the number? Okay, so a lot to unpack there. First of all, it's very funny that, I mean, remember when he went up for the Ultimate Fighter, who knows how his contract was structured? Because they signed to fight in the January of that year. They fought him and Stipe at, at, at heavyweight later on in July, I think, I think for International Fight Week. I, I could be wrong about that. Um, who knows what the nature was of his contract? Was he getting a new one to go up? Was there something involved with the Ultimate Fighter that raised the pay? Was there some kind of ladder built in for that ahead of time? It's not really clear but in general what we've seen with demetrius johnson and other ones you know they're not going to give you extra money to go up a weight class if you go up a weight class and you get two belts there's legacy there there's going to make sure you have pay-per-view points in two different directions at the same time right so there's a lot that can be financially rewarded once you have the belts obviously or you're competing for them um but it doesn't sound like every day that that happens for you again who knows what the circumstances are for dc but so he says I got it. A lot of people don't. Whatever. Then he changes the conversation. I think to uh, I think the right the right question, which is what is John asking for? And for DC, seven million sounds pretty reasonable. Okay. Here's the problem with mentioning seven or ten or twelve. This is the game. This is the game that the promoter plays here, right? What they do is they pay somebody, let's say five million dollars for a big fight. Five million dollars for the overwhelming majority of humanity is life-altering amounts of money, not merely for your life, but for a lot of people around you, and maybe even generationally. It is a significant amount of money. And so they just say, isn't that a lot of money? But you can't just sort of reach out and grab a number that just sounds pleasing or that sounds like a lot. The question is not that. The question is, 
what is seven million dollars relative to what the ufc and this joint operation is drawing in the ufc uses this words this is not me making this up the ufc uses this words and has used these words for a long time that when they cut you in on pay-per-view and you get a share of the points by virtue of the sales you become their pay-per-view partner it's why part of the contract mandates that you do a certain amount of media, right? Because they need to make sure that both entities here, on their end, they're producing assets. On your end, you're getting out there and pounding the pavement. I think that's a fairly reasonable way to go about it. Again, you know, minute differences here or there. Um, in general, though, uh, the, the, it's not five or seven or twelve or twenty or fifty. None, none of the, you're just making up. You might as well just say blue and green numbers and red numbers. It doesn't mean anything. The only thing that means anything is a function of what is ultimately drawn by the promoter, both for that event and then in an annual basis. And the difference there, I suspect, is going to be significant. I suspect it's going to be significant. Now, it may not be much higher than 10 or 12 or 15 million. Um, who's to say? We, we, we don't really have a, enough access, at least on a per event basis, to generally know. But what we do know is the UFC's volatility in pay-per-view has been largely wiped away. They can generate 800 million annually. We mentioned this before. The fighters do not get a cut of any of the television money. Imagine if they got 30, 40, potentially even 50% of that, um, if they were able to have their own sponsors, blah, 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 blah. I also think, that. You you know, not giving the fighters TV money, not letting them have their own sponsors. It just raises concerns about fighter pay. I mean, the whole reason why you want them to have dynamic fastener and whoever else that they had was that it offsets concerns that you need to pay them more because they're able to live off their sponsorship. You take that away, you now have encumbered yourself in another manner that doesn't need to happen. But again, the argument is not about is five million enough, is seven million enough. That's a, that's an enormous sum of money. But if if you give me a million dollars and I come to find out that what I am owed by virtue of what someone else does the exact same job or virtually the exact same job, a very similar kind for a very similar arrangement, and they make 15 million, and I could make a real credible case, let's say I took you to court, that I could make 15 million, yeah, if I, I, 1 million is great, but if I'm owed 14 million more, I'm not gonna be too thrilled about it. The argument is not about a number that we invent that sounds nice. It is a function of what the percentage is Annual revenue, event revenue. That's it. That's the only discussion, period. And what they're getting, and Cormier is part of this, what they're all getting in totality is 16 to 18%. That's what they're getting. So I don't know what John asked. He might have asked for the world. Uh, we, again, I think it's fair to ask what John was asking, but I would say one, your asking price is always going to be a little bit higher, right? So you can negotiate down and you get to something where you're more comfortable with, right? If you go into a job interview and you want to make 60K, you don't go in asking for 60K, you go in asking for 70, 75, and then you argue down to 60, 61, 62, or maybe, maybe you get something higher. You don't go in with your first offer because they're going to negotiate down from that point. So that could be it as well. Now, that really isn't what I have issue with with DC because, again, three, five, seven, 10, 12 million, it's a lot of money. I don't think that's the argument, but fair to say that's not the best way to hash this out. What really kind of surprised me here was the second cut about why DC likes his pay to not be, the overall totality of it, to not be publicly disclosed. It's cut to, let me hear it. I, I couldn't agree more with your point that if we're going to be, I think that all the purses should be public, not because Ooh. I want to be up nope. in your business, 
But then we know what people are truly, you know, what people they're about. No people have no idea what we make, and I love it that way. You I love it? I love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. Of course it. you do. But, but now go, here in a situation oh, like go, this. You're underpaid. This dude's so underpaid. I'm like, are you guys stupid? Like, how crazy can you be? But it also keeps your family off of you. Sure. That's the beauty yeah. in it, right? Now, everybody's always like, can I borrow something? I'm like, hey, man, I'm broke. You yeah. saw me $500,000 last fight. Like, I got to take care of my family. I bought a house. Like, I'm broke, man. Like, I made 500 grand. Okay, I found this very surprising from Daniel. I don't know why he said it. Um, I think Daniel's one of the smartest guys in MMA. He's certainly one of the nicest. He's a credit to the sport. It has been an honor to cover his career. But let's just call it what it is. That is promoter speak. The, uh, the camouflaging of numbers where the only thing that gets released to the public is part of the publicly declared purse. So like if you get a knockout bonus, you're showing your win, nothing else like the pay-per-view numbers uh, are not publicly disclosed. The only reason why that's done is not a service to the fighter. That is not what happens. It might have the ancillary benefit of denying family members a greater window into your financial security. Okay, it might do that, but what it overall does is when you don't tell the full picture, it depresses wages. That is the express purpose of it. That is why it exists. That is its ultimate function is to keep wages from reaching their maximum or certainly a higher value. If nobody is able to make a judgment about what you're making in the, a highly competitive but narrow field um, where you have high risk occupancy, there is... Uh, excuse me, high-risk occupation. There is no trade association. There is no union. It can cause tension in the locker room if someone knows they're making more than the other one. But the only way they're able to get what they're entitled to is with transparency of information. That is it. That is it. And by the way, let me put this out here. If any other media member wants to know what I make, I am all too happy to tell you, and I tell them every single time. When I had my first television contract, you know who I called? John Anik. John Anik walked me through how to work through a television contract, told me what people make, what the numbers were, blah, 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 blah. And I use that to get a great contract. And what they tell you in television is your first contract is maybe your most important because everything builds after that. And he was right. He was right. John Anik helped me with that big time. Okay. It is real. And when you suppress that information, when it's denied, um, the result is the promoter is able to keep 16 to 18% of total gross revenue share for a fighter compensation. That is the ultimate result. In fact, um, this is what, uh, I think Dana White said this years ago, like we're preventing the fighters from having their family harass them. Okay. If they know you make more, perhaps that will bring the, the greedy out from the woodwork. But this is, the, this is literally what the promoter says to depress wages. You know, So it looks to me, I, I don't know what motivations Daniel has for saying this. I'm certain that he's well compensated. I genuinely take him at his word that he believes the UFC has been generous with him. And I think that they have. Right. Like they have taken good care of him. Those things matter. Like when he says the UFC gave him money for a Christmas that he otherwise would not have had. I believe that. And the imprint that can leave on this family and his wife and his kids and him, it, it, it is significant. It is lasting. And it has, I think, you know, engendered a great degree of appreciation and probably loyalty as well. But let's be absolutely clear about it. Those numbers are not denied to the public. 
and forget the public. I mean, the public gets to see them, but that's not really who the benefit is for, who it's aimed at. Um, they were not denied transparency to help the fighter. There might be a little bit where it helps. There is a lot where it denies them. It absolutely denies them, right? It, it hurts them bad. Uh, any, any job is going to want you to go in blindly, not knowing what you make for that job. And so as a consequence, you can't argue for what you actually might be worth. And most people will kind of lowball it out of fear of overshooting the moon. That's that, it's just how it goes. So I was very surprised to hear that, to be honest with you. Um, I'm very much in favor of all the information being transparent. And I'll say it one more time, because of those court case papers up through 2016, we actually know what they made and in what proportion and how. Strongly encourage you to look them up. Anthony Smith on MMA Tonight. Is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson, so I'm not sure if they ran that back, if it would look much different. Maybe that was the Gaethje effect. Like, maybe it's not Tony. Maybe he didn't have an off night, and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad. At this point, there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155-pounder on the planet. Tuesday through Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation. We have an esteemed guest joining us via the magic of Zoom. He takes on Eddie Wineland at UFC 250. He is back in action in pretty short order, which we're glad to see. It is Sugar Sean O'Malley. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good, man. Uh, first things first, how are you living in this uh, quarantined era of ours? Are you making life uh, doable each day? Yeah. Um, literally not, nothing's changed for me, not even a little bit. So yeah, nothing's, every, everything's pretty much been normal since, uh, since it all started. How are you able to train? Walk me through what you're able to do with uh, the facility closed. I mean, well, closed to the public. Are you guys able to go in there and get what you need done? Yeah, Tim, um, you know, like one of pretty much my head coach, he, he owns his own gym. So we, we just been cruising in there, had a small group of people for a while, um, and then my strength conditioning coach, Brandon Harris, has a gym at his house in his backyard. So, you know, not, literally haven't missed the training session since, you know, since the whole thing started. Catch me up. Perhaps I am behind the times. Are you no longer with MMA Lab? No, I, I train at the lab still. Um, I go there a couple times a week, go to Tim's a couple times a week, and then my strength conditioning time, uh, coach a couple times a week. Um, and But I, I do my sparring at the lab. Um but yeah, I'm definitely still at the lab. Got it. Okay. Uh, and you're in uh, what Arizona, right? So like, what are the restrictions in Arizona? Cause obviously it varies state to state at this point. I have no idea. I literally don't <laughs> have pay attention to any of that. I have zero idea. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you're not impacted at all, man. Have you traveled at all? Or you just been staying, staying home, staying busy in the gym. Um, just at the beginning, I think right after my fight, I went to Montana my little sister had state basketball. Um, we flew there and then the, the next day they got canceled. So we flew, we just flew right back home. Um, and ever since been, just been home. Right. And you fought on March 7th. Wow. So like right after that was when sort of the world kind of collapsed. Okay. Very interesting. Right. Um, all right. So let's get to this. Eddie Wineland. Uh, let me tell you what I love about this opponent. Number one, he is credentialed, right? He's a veteran. He's been around a long time, seen a lot of different looks 
And he is, you know, he's got a weird kind of motion that he uses to fight with. And to me, if you're a guy on the come up who's got a lot of eyeballs on him, if you can get past a guy like Eddie who's experienced and has an unusual fight style, uh, it, you know, it says a lot, right? So for you, what is the value in defeating Eddie Wineland? Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's a perfect next step up, next match. Um, I think, uh, you know, beating him, he, he's not hes not one of those top, top guys right now. He's a vet. He's got a weird style. Um, I think beating him definitely shows, you know, I'm, I'm as good as I say I am. But it doesn't show. It, it's not like I'm beating someone in the top 10 right now. So, you know, I think I go out there and beat him. You know, it shows that, okay, the hype's real. Um, but I still got a lot to prove. Did you, did they come to you with a lot of different names or it was just the first one? They're like, Hey, this guy wants to fight. We think he'd be great. Yeah. Uh, Sean Shelby text me. I actually said, I, uh, I was looking through the, the who, who's coming off wins and stuff. And I saw Eddie Wineland was, I saw so I messaged UFC. I said, Hey, what do you guys think um, about Eddie? They said, I don't know. He's a firefighter. We'll see. We'll see what, what he says. And he accepted the fight. So it just happened. It just worked out good. It just, you know, I just saw his name. I'm like, that'd be a perfect fight for me. Um, he's a, he's a vet and it, 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 he's coming off a win. So that's all that really matters. Wow. So you acted as your own matchmaker for this one. Have you done that before? Uh, I don't have a manager. So yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it was, but, but I, what I mean to say is like, if you texted Shelby before and been like, yo, I think this would be a great fight. And then like they came back and said, yeah, we think that'd be great. Like prior to this, have you had this kind of interaction with UFC matchmakers before? <laughs> well, the last time I talked to UFC was, you know, two years before. The fight, <laughs> so I, I don't really remember how the, I think I was supposed to fight. I don't know if I was supposed to fight Cheeto or Teco first. Um, I don't remember which one I was supposed to fight first. Oops. Sorry. I turn my brightness up but yeah i don't know who i was supposed to fight first but i, I don't remember even how that came about that's still that's pretty brilliant to get your own uh, quick turnaround like that against i think what stands to be the right opponent and to do it uh, in such a way where you're calling your own shots now, sort of interestingly there why don't you have a manager um you want, you want it's kind of a it's not a long story but it's like Last time I talked to UFC, they flew me out to Vegas, sat me down, me and my manager, Sean Shelby. Um, Sean Shelby said, hey, this is what we're thinking for your next contract. And I looked at my manager. I'm like, are you, are you serious? And my manager didn't say anything. Like, he didn't help me at all. I mm. negotiated my contract. I'm the one that's got not necessarily what I wanted because UFC was pretty much set in their ways of what I was going to get paid. Um, and my manager didn't say anything. My last fight, my girl, she was in the top of this. She was in the stands. Like I couldn't even find her after my fight. My, you know, that's where they gave me tickets. Um, I've never had an after party. Um, love you. And, um, and then I have to pay him 10% after my fight for, you know, not doing much. So, and then to, just to get out of the contract, I had to pay him a, you know, a lot of money just to get out of the contract. So I ended up paying him way more money than he's ever made me. He's a nice person. Just to, it's pointless. I think, I think having, it just wasn't worth it. I'm not, I, I'm not trying to pay someone more than they're making me. Um, so yeah, it just wasn't worth it. 
You know what? I had a I had an agent for a time too. I had the exact same experience. I completely understand it. Do you at least have a lawyer look over the document to give you the old lawyerly yeah. thumbs up? Yeah, I do. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds pretty good. Sean O'Malley joins yeah. us here uh, on the Luke Thomas show. You know, what's interesting, Sean, is uh, Henry Cejudo just dropped the title. Now, there is speculation he could come back, but if he doesn't, um, you still have a ways to go to climb the rankings. But I'm wondering what you make of the state of the division now that the champion has dropped the title and they're going to do this potential four-man informal tourney to see what happens. It seems like there's a bit of a youth movement that's pushing out the old guard. Yeah, I, I don't know whether whether he's scared or stupid or smart. Scared or smart. He's either smart, retiring on top, kind of leaving at the top, or he's not necessarily scared, but he's like, damn, that's a lot of tough fights in my division. I can just leave while I'm on top right now. Uh, I think he'll be back. He's in his prime. He's you know he's he's gonna see this belt. Someone fight for the belt, and I, I feel like he's gonna get that itch to come back. Um, yeah, the, there's you know those four four people that talk about for the uh, bantamweight title. No one's really standing out. No one's really like, this is who we want to be our champ. Um, I win a couple more fights. I'm that guy. I'm the guy that people are going to want to see the bantamweight champ. I'm that guy. So it's, and I'm going to go out there and perform like I did last time um, against Eddie. And then whoever I fight next, I'm going to go out there and do the same thing. And I'm only a couple, couple fights away from the title. Cause it, it, it the, if you look at the rankings, they don't really matter. You had Jose Aldo ranked number what? Six in the bantamweight division. He's never even won. Dominic Cruz coming off a loss fight, but the rankings don't matter. Um, I think those top four dudes right now, the Sterling, Jan, Corey, and uh, who's the other one? Marlon. Marlon. Those top four dudes are killers. They're high-level black belts in MMA. Um, but no one's talking about them. No one really – no one's like, that's the dude. If I had a – no one's that interesting. I'm that guy. I'm that guy that's going to come, knock these dudes out, get my title shot and I'm going to be champ and it's going to be, you know, people want to see me there. Um, and, and it's, it, it's going to be exciting. Why don't you think people talk about them? I mean, they do, the insiders talk about all four of them in the ways that you are, which is they are a force to be reckoned with, but why don't, why don't you think they get greater visibility? Yeah. And I don't want to say no one talks about, it. I'm saying, I guess the, you know, the, the hardcore MMA fans know exactly who they are and they know exactly you know, where they stand in the division, but I'm right. talking about the people that don't really watch fighting that much. They have no idea who those dudes are. They might know who I am. Maybe not yet. I'm not, I'm not quite that star yet just cause I haven't had, you know, I've only had three fights, um, in UFC, but give me a couple more fights. I'm going to be, I'm going to be that star. I'm going to be that guy that everyone's talking about. That everyone's know that everyone knows. Um, you know, and I'm, well, and I'm not what, Sorry. I'm just sort of here's what I'm trying to pinpoint as a question, which is I generally agree with you that you have a degree of visibility that they don't. Um, so I'm trying to understand from your perspective why that is. Why is it that people seem to really latch on to you? Uh, and these guys, credit to them, they're a little bit more senior in the division. They haven't quite had that same experience. What, what do you think the difference is? That, that's the question. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I don't know why some people gravitate towards others. And some don't, um, that, that, that's the question. I don't know, whatever, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it right. I don't know if it's, you know, the, the performances I'm having, the knockouts that I'm getting, you know, it's that, that's the, that's the question. I don't know if it's that I'm more active on social media 
or or what it is, but it's I'm working. The guy that's that's making yeah, I'm the, I'm gonna be the guy that's making noise in the bantamweight division. Hey, hey, uh, let's let's get your sense of how this goes. I'm gonna pretend to be matchmaker here. Now we know that Sterling is gonna fight Sanhagen on the same card that you're on. Who do you think wins that one? Yeah, that's a super interesting fight. Both those dudes are, you know, super high level. Um, I, I think Corey might take it, um, but that's kind of a toss-up. I, I really don't know. Now, well, let's I say Mar- Corey might take it. Okay, so you have a slight edge to Corey. What if Marlon faces off with Peter Yan? Who do you like there? Ooh, that's another sweet fight. See that four-man bracket? Sound, you know, I, I definitely want to – I'd love to – is that is that a – fight peter versus marlin or not, not it was it was supposed to be before the pandemic and then it got you know uh, everything kind of fell apart right dang that would be a sweet fight i'm gonna take peter though Pete. okay Pete. Uh, Pete. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it properly either i will just say peter for now all right so let's say Jan versus yep. sanhagen for the vacant bantamweight title who takes that one Whoo, that's a sweet matchup i would love to watch that <laughs> that's such a hard fight to guess it's so hard it it I don't even know. I, I would. I think probably Corey. I'd have to watch both of their fights. I've only watched them both fight a couple times. Um, but you know, you watch them fight. You you can tell they're high level. You can tell, you know, they're they're good. But I I, I like Corey in that. I think you know his, his footwork, his his defense, his style is you know similar to mine in a way. Um, and I think that style is kind of the you know the way to win. Is that the guy you want to face when you're ready? Like if, uh, let's say, let's say you had a choice, any four of them could have the belt, right? So we could live in a world where Peter, Aljamain, Marlin, or Corey have it. You're fighting for the title. Is there any one in particular you want to face or is it just about the title itself, irrespective of opponent? Um, yeah, pr- pretty much. I would say pr- they're all tough fights. Um, I, I truly believe I could beat, beat them all. Um, but they're all really, really high level, tough fights. I don't think one's necessarily easier than the other. Yeah, they're all pretty close. You So if I'm reading you right, let's say it's only May. So it'll be June when you fight, right? So there's still some mm-hmm. time left, half a year in 2020. Are you under the impression that in your mind, on your schedule, you'll be competing for a bantamweight title in 2021? Yeah, pr- probably. I'm, I'm re- honestly not in a hurry. I'm not kind of, I'm not, it depends how much the UFC, you know, if they're going to pay me what they're going to pay me now, I'm going to, I'm going to be like, yeah, I'll fight dudes. I'll fight other guys. If you want to pay me more money to fight better guys, I'll fight the better guys, but I'm not going to fight the better guys right now with the money you're paying me right now. It just doesn't make sense from a business perspective, from a fighter's mind. It's like, I want, I want to obviously fight the best guys in the world. I want to be champ, but in a business kind of mindset, it's like, okay, you're going to pay me this amount. I'm going to pick, I'm going to fight someone that's not the best in the world right now. So it, it totally depends on what, what UFC ends up wanting to pay. That's, that's, that's sort of what Cejudo did, right? I mean, he fought Al, or he was going to fight Aldo. He fought Cruz. Uh, no, he fought Marlon, which was ridiculous. Okay. We can all agree. That's pretty right. amazing. But after yeah. that, he was like, fuck that. I'm not fighting Sterling. Yeah. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. Cruz. And Cruz is no walk in the park, but you know, off right. three and a half years and the whole nine yards. Yeah. So you sort of agree that like challenges, that are increasingly difficult, the pay should be commensurate with it. Yeah, it's it's the it's a dangerous, dangerous sport. Um, so the tougher guys you fight, you should be getting paid paid more. So, yeah, I, I think uh, 
it, it is a business at the end of the day. It's a sport. It's a business. It's uh, you know, it's our lives too. So it's not just our careers. It's our lives on the line. Well, I can't wait to see the next step. Hey, uh, when Ninja went to, what is it? Mixer. Did that change your life on Twitch at all? Like, do you care about Ninja leaving Twitch? No, I, I didn't. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm not a huge streamer. I'd say I'm a pretty small time streamer. Um, but the community, so it's, it's almost nice kind of having a smaller stream because some of those big streams, like they can't even read the messages. They're going so fast. Like you can't really connect with certain people. I have guys that have been subscribing to me for 27 months in a row. And I know wow. exactly which ones there are. I know, with, you know, I have conversations with those guys. Um, so I've been playing about an hour and a half a day right now. Um, and, and I have, I can have conversations, you know, it's fun. Sometimes I'll, I'll follow them on Instagram, kind of get to know those people. So it, it's almost nice. Obviously the more chat that I have, the more people in my chat, the more money I make, but it's not necessarily even about that. It's, I like playing video games and it's an awesome way to interact with the fans and have a, you know, I play, I have a ton of friends that I play with that are subscribers on Twitch that are, that I, I've met through, through that. So it's, it's, it, it, streaming on Twitch is super fun, but yeah, when, and when Ninja left, uh, I didn't even did nothing changed. <laughs> Fair enough. I started playing mortal Kombat during the, uh, mortal Kombat 11 during the, uh, the pandemic. Have you played that game? Do you enjoy it? I, I actually never played, played that game. Uh, what do you huh. play on? Uh, I play it on my PC. Nice. Yeah. That's the way to go. This, yeah. this company called Ava direct hooked me up with an absolutely insane PC. Um, because I used to play on Xbox and, you know, everyone kept telling me you need to get a PC, you need to get a PC. So yeah, yeah I ended up teaming up with this company and the PC that that's a game changing playing from a console to a PC. Oh yeah. Way I'm not faster. even, I'm not even much of a gamer, but when I had an Xbox and then I transitioned to this one and it was like, you know, it's, it's like going from a hoopty to a, to a sports car. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, Sean, really appreciate your time, man. Can't wait to see you fight. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Looking forward to UFC 250 when you take on Eddie Wineland. Really appreciate your time, and we'll talk soon. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I, I'd grit my teeth and just, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews now for free for most subscribers so yesterday i tweeted that the cage for the bout well not merely the main event but the entire event on saturday assuming it takes place at the apex this could change if they go to arizona or whatever again all that seems unlikely but just putting it out there in any event let's assume that everything goes as it's supposed to as planned they're going to use a 25 foot cage not a 30 25 feet in diameter not 30 feet now, you might be asking, wait, what's the deal here? So the UFC has two different cages. The one you are commonly used to seeing and predominantly seeing is the 30-foot cage. This is the one they use for all pay-per-views and most fight nights. But there's a different cage that they have, which is 25 feet in diameter. Of course, both are octagons, eight-sided, with the same kind of diagonal space in between them. But it is essentially shrunk down. It is a smaller uh, space. And you might be asking, well, how much smaller is it when you reduce it like that? It's a little bit more than you might imagine. When you take it from 30 feet across to 25 feet in diameter, 
in terms of the surface area, it's 44% less in size uh, and 20% narrower, right? So the bigger cage, 20% wider, 44% bigger. I mean, just noodle that for a second. If you had a baseball diamond and I reduced it 44 per, by 44% and everything else in the game stayed the same, how many more home runs would you have, Right? I mean, how many more base hits or anything else would you have? Probably a significant amount. Um, if you had a tennis court that you reduced by 44% in size, what would that do to service and volleys? and everything? It would dramatically impact the game, right? So it does the exact same thing here in MMA. In general, what it does, and this will vary across weight classes. This is not entirely true across the board. We don't have any information on this as it relates to the women. So, you know, all bets are off there. But in general, it shortens fight time. It puts more fights up against the cage. And uh, it produces more finishes, right? This is, I think, really the magic of WEC. A lot of people romanticize WEC when it was the guys 155 and below, right? 155, 145, 135, and 125. I don't think they had 125 at the time. Actually, I can't remember. No, I don't think they did. So when it was Bantam waiting up. And part of that was, yes, I mean, those guys are highly skilled. There's a, they, they fight a different way. There's a lot of scrambling that's involved. Okay, fine. But a big part of it was they just had a smaller cage. And it turns out when you have a smaller cage, I mean, just think about it rationally. There's less place to hide, right? You are literally forced together more readily. And when you begin to think about that, that has dramatic consequences for a lot of fights. Um, at many weight classes, not all of them, it increases the rate of knockouts. Uh, in many weight classes, albeit not all of them, it increases the rates of submissions. As I mentioned, you know, someone was asking me, is the space behind the two black lines, so from the two black line to the fence, is that the same size, just sort of you know, the rest of the cage shrunk down, or is that actually a smaller space itself? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to it, but here's what I do know. Whether it's shrunk down or the same size, either way the answer is going to be, I don't know the difference, but it's going to be a lot easier to push people into it. And remember, once you push people behind the two black lines and up against the fence, you have dramatically impacted their ability to, let's talk about striking, um, defend themselves, right? They stand tall up against the fence. They can go left or right, but if you, unless you're really a master of it, uh, it narrows your options. You, you quite literally cannot go backwards. You cannot set angles. It's hard to set traps once you're all the way backed up against it. Right. And that's where a lot of knockouts happens, where a lot of submissions happen. Most action in the UFC happens on the outer rim of the cage. Well, now it's easier to get there. So it just forces action. And a lot of people did not seem to know that on social media. People were like, oh, you're just making stuff up. No, I am not. This is a fact. I tweeted about it at L Thomas News. You can go check it out and you can look at what some of the studies that they have done to measure the difference. When you shrink that fighting size, dude, I mean, just think about it rationally. If you had a phone booth or a football field, is the fight going to look different? I mean, that, those are two exaggerated examples, but it illustrates the point. The size of and the shape of the fighting surface, it makes a big deal. Last week, we were talking about Mirko Krokop having an issue translating his game to the octagon because he was accustomed to maneuvering around the four right angles where motion has to be sharp and it's easier to cut somebody off who doesn't have that. Well, when you've got those huge exit angles in an octagon, you're not used to cutting people off there. It can be really, really hard. It's really, really difficult. And he struggled at first for a while, actually, um, even through past the Gonzaga fight. So, yeah, 
that, that was a big part of it. it. Fighting surface and shape dictates a lot. This is why when everyone's like, oh, what's the perfect fight scenario, or that's a real fight, or that's not a real fight, I, I never know what these things mean. I mean, yeah, some fights have more dire consequences. Some have so many obstacles that it's hard to even call them a fight anymore, right? But in general, there's no such thing as a real fight versus a not real fight. Um, there's just a degree to which you have, uh, there's some that are sanctioned versus not. There's some that are planned versus not. Uh, there's some that have weapons versus not. But in general, there's no such thing as a real one and a not real one, unless one is staged on purpose and fake. There's just a series of different circumstances that define, um, or well, those, those circumstances define the, the, the complexion. That's it. There's no other real difference. There's no such thing as a pure fight. Right? Um, so, what do I expect out of like Gilbert Burns and Tyron Woodley? It can go two ways. Gilbert Burns is going to have a very easy time getting Tyron Woodley, I think, back to the fence in no small part because Tyron Woodley likes going to the back of the fence, to be quite honest with you. He likes it a lot. On the other hand, um, if Gilbert Burns rushes in there and gets clipped because he doesn't have the same spatial latitude that he once did, it's going to be bad for him, right? So it could go either way, but it's going to force action in either direction. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.